Indeed, may the Lord give us faith, faith to receive what he has here for us, to learn and grow in the word of God. Luke 1, verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask God to be with us in his word. Let's pray. Father, take these dark letters of these words on these cream-colored pages. Take these words from this gospel, and you quicken those words to our hearts. Send them forth into the heart, into the mind, and that, Father, from our hands and from our feet and from our mouths, everything would be given over to you in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so be with us, we ask, and now be our encouragement. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In this song, or, and that's what we're told here, she magnifies the Lord, she lifts her voice. We don't know, in fact, if it was put to a tune or not, but we do know that she lifts her voice in some form of praise. Well, Mary knows her Bible. Bible teachers tell us there are probably seven different Bible books. There are 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. She's probably quoting from seven of them. Now, it's a bit misleading to say she's quoting from, you know, the 27 New Testament books. (laughs) All right? Because she's living in the New Testament era. But the point of the matter is she knows her Old Testament. She's actually quoting from Genesis all the way back down to Malachi. She's got the whole Old Testament in view. And other Bible teachers tell us that she's probably probably alluding to and hinting at other scriptures as well through this whole song. So what's her point? Her point is this in terms of, okay, why all the quotations and why all the allusions and and hinting to Old Testament stories and Old Testament situations is she knows that what the Old Testament was predicting, what the Old Testament was anticipating is now before her very eyes. That's what's going on. She is entering into what we commonly would say New Testament times. This is a transition period from the old to the new. And she's waiting upon God. She's resting in his word. 
She is standing on the Lord and his word. Uh, it's almost like we can say if Mary were here and we were interviewing her a little bit, she might say something like this. This is his truth. She's thinking of God's word. This is his truth. No errors, no misleading, no fudging. We read it, we listen to it, we stand on it, no budging. Come what may, our God has spoken. Come what may, his word is never broken. That's what she'd say. <laughs> so she's standing on the word of God, the truth. There's an introductory section of this song. And then there's some structure to the psalm, the song. We're actually going to spend more time on the structure than the intro. But look at the intro. Uh, she says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's the image of a telescope. You know, a telescope looks up at the sky, the heavenly bodies, as we say, the constellations, the, the, you know, right, the billions and the stars everywhere. And the telescope brings up close to magnify. And that's what she's doing. She's bringing up, she's bringing up close the Lord. And her phraseology, the words that she's expressing, is to take something that's ginormous. If you might stay with that thought with me about our great God. But the God who is great, the God who is all glory, the God who is majestic in all who he is and what he is. She brings up close. And these are words to magnify his loftiness and who he is. Now a word about the structure of the song. There's a unit of thought. I want you to follow this. There's a unit of thought from verses 50 to 55. The unit of thought is that at verse 50, it's the beginning portion of the words about God's mercy, those who fear him from generation to generation. Then run your eyes down to 54 and 55. He is the one who helps Israel. Israel is his servant. In remembrance, here it is again, of his mercy... It's a repeated theme, what began about mercy in the generations. She's now going to close out the Spirit of God giving her these, these words. She closes out with a theme of mercy. As he spoke, 55 here, as he spoke to our fathers back generations ago to Abraham and to his offspring. This unit of thought is centering on God's faithfulness. And most specifically, it's the promise given to Abraham. Abraham was given this promise that through him, all the generations, all the family line through him, all the families of the earth, all the families of the nations of the earth would be blessed generation by generation by generation. And it's all of his mercy. So if, if she were sitting at the, if Mary were sitting at the piano, you see, this structure would be thematically composed. It's a, it's a unit of thought. She begins speaking about the generations. She begins then speaking about the mercy of God. That middle section that I haven't commented on yet is about the toppling of these kings. Those who are mighty, they're going to be sent away empty, all that kind of stuff. That's what we're left with. That's the idea of what the fulfillment of God's covenant purposes through Abraham is to topple this world. That's where we're going. She is singing a great song of praise that his name is great and his name will triumph. It's a great song. Let's look at three points of this unit of thought. Three points of this unit of thought. We're grounded ultimately in God's faithfulness. That's ultimately the lesson that we're learning. God is faithful. 
The first point is to look at his faithfulness, as we've already said, from generation to generation. Secondly, to look at his faithfulness according to his mercy. He's a merciful God. And then thirdly, as I've said, through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. We're going to see God's faithfulness in the newness of a new world that's coming, a new world. The nations of the world are being blessed. Let's take up this first one. He is faithful generation by generation. Look at verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God is putting his faithfulness on display, especially as he reveals himself to Abraham. You know, so much of the Genesis storyline is about Abraham and the fathers, and that's why you had that reference down in 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, why is Abraham? Why is Abraham such a central figure in the Old Testament? Well, Israel's history begins with the story of Abraham. The story begins there. The covenant that God makes and gets repeated uh, in the scriptures, gets all kinds of attention throughout the Old Testament on into the New, is that this is the covenant that God made with Abraham. And just listen to Genesis chapter 12, those opening words about this language that God comes to Abraham and has a plan for him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The essentials of God going to Abraham and starting that onset of that ministry through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the fathers of the faith, the fathers of Israel, that through those lines of the generations, indeed, God would be showing forth that commitment that generation by generation by generation, he would be faithful. So now, how do we apply this to our daily living? God is faithful generation by generation by generation. God is faithful by generation to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. How do we apply this? God first could have gone to a king. He didn't. God could have first, rather than Abraham, he could have gone to a landowner. He didn't. God could have gone to an educator. He didn't. God could have gone to a businessman. He didn't. God could have gone to a synagogue, a religious figure. He didn't. He goes to a family man. (laughs) God reveals his covenant plan for all the earth through the family. So dads, grandpas, granddads, you are uniquely being summoned to your interpersonal ministry. That's how the faith is passed from generation by generation by generation. It's God's faithfulness. Now here's what I like. This is based on our triune God. Notice this. The Bible reveals to us it's a father to a son. That the gospel is rooted. That the gospel is displayed. That the gospel is manifest. That's the good news that we announce to this lost world. The father has sent his son. It's the image. Don't take it too far and get off into some area of heresy. But it's the image that it's the passing of 
of the Father unto the Son to commission him to go to this earth and to live out the gospel. And that image of a son unto a father and a father commissioning to the son, the father providing this to the son for the son, and the son serving his father, that is to be bound up into our own daily gospel living. So interpersonal relationships are at a premium. Husbands to wives are at a premium. Wives to husbands are at a premium. The familial, the family-like characteristics of gospel living is at a premium. This is God's ordinary work. And here's one other application. This is to the parents. Parents, God has already told you in the scriptures that he's committed to taking the model of weakness What's the model of weakness? The rising generation. The model of weakness is being uneducated. They're being nurtured in the faith. They're weak in their stature. They're smaller in stature. God has committed already the insecure, the one that's growing, the one that's needful for provision, the generation coming up behind us. God has already told us in the word, he especially works with the generation coming up behind us. You go into your parenting. You go into your family worship. You go into your gospel work. You go into your catechism work. Questions and answers about the faith. You go into your singing. You go into your praying. Everything that you go into, my way of saying, as you carry out ministry, God has already said, I will take that which is weak and make strong. That's why we have all these stories of a young Mary, a Joseph who's 17 years of age and leads the family down to Egypt. That's why we have a young Josiah who's at seven years. That's why we have a, we have a young uh, David who's a shepherd boy. He's a youth. What is this youth doing here before Goliath? God is committed to the younger generation. So grandparents and parents, moms and dads, as you're ministering to that generation coming up behind you, God is saying, I'm already committed, especially committed to nurture the young in your midst. He's faithful. He passes his truth on generation by generation. And what is that truth that we so much need? The second point, it's his mercy. It's his pity. Mary's song is connected to mercy and pity. God's faithfulness is connected to mercy and pity. Well, why is mercy connected here with God's faithfulness? Because Israel repeatedly had lived in faithlessness. Israel repeatedly lived in doubt. Israel repeatedly lived in unbelief. We're talking about disobedience. Now, you know, sometimes we will refer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism question, and we'll, and we'll oftentimes refer to question number one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Israel had her own question number one. What is the chief end of Israel? Israel's chief end is to forsake the true God and to cheapen joy forever. That's it. And her disobedience results in judgment. And the primary judgment for Israel is to be chastened by being sent away into some exile land. And yet God has mercy. He has compassion. God is especially committed in his faithfulness to demonstrate that he is Savior and Lord and he's merciful. And Jesus is the answer 
to Israel's need, and that's what Mary is singing about. Jesus is the one who comes, who's born in the line of Abraham. He comes as the true descendant, the seed, the offspring of Abraham, through whom Israel and all the nations would be blessed. It's mercy. God sends forth his mercy in his son. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, says, Men do not fear God because they presume on his mercy. God is merciful, and they do not doubt of the virtue of, his sovereign, of this sovereign balm. But who is, God's, uh, who is God's mercy for? His mercy extends to those who fear him, Luke 1.50. And such as do not fear God and his justice shall not taste of his mercy. And so you see, these lessons about God's faithfulness, and Mary's singing about these lessons, that God is faithful generation by generation by generation by generation. All intertwined with the story of his mercy is the gospel we announce. And that's being announced in this song about the coming birth of Messiah. One last area is that this dawn, this epoch, this era, this, this new, these New Testament times are the fulfillment of the old. And it's the story of Abraham that there will be a son who will come, one of his seed, an offspring of Abraham. And that's what we have at the very end of the song. He has helped his servant Israel, verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. There would be one who would come and would bless the entire earth. This gospel is not puny. <laughs> this gospel is not reduced to a few Americans. This gospel is not reduced to Good Shepherd OPC in Sugarland, Texas. This gospel is big. This gospel goes to the world, to the nations of men, to all the kindreds, the families, to the different tongues, the different peoples of the earth. And that's what she's singing about. It's a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. In you, Abraham, I'm quoting Genesis now, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the newness of a new creation. And I want us to see one thing as we wrap up. When talking about Gabriel, remember, Gabriel has two assignments. He has two assignments in Luke 1. His first assignment is to go to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it's the story there about the announcement that John is going to be coming, the forerunner of Jesus. His second assignment is to go to Mary, and we looked at that this morning. He goes to Mary and says, you know, the one within you is going to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. It's the announcement of the coming of, the, of her conception. It's, Bible teachers tell us it's one thing to talk about barrenness, and I mean this sincerely and with, with heartfelt interest here. So, you know, Old Testament Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, she's barren. Old Testament Hannah, she is barren for Samuel. So what happens? 
in that family tree back in the Old Testament there, these different ones of these stories where there is barrenness, men are turned to the Lord. That's to say, people are in prayer. People are looking to God. People are expectant that he, he indeed will provide. And we have these stories in God's good pleasure. The womb is opened. And you have that example here with the old age of Elizabeth, beyond child, the age of childbearing. But God works his work and prayers are answered. But these stories, now to stay with this text, these stories of barrenness, and as we hopscotch through the scriptures and we get to Luke 1, these stories of barrenness are only to be paralleled alongside of Mary because there is a hope and expectation of fulfillment that someone indeed would be born, that that womb would be opened. But when you actually get to Mary herself, it's not merely something about barrenness that might come to our minds. It's the miracle birth of a virgin's birth. This baby to be born is altogether different. It's a miracle. And that sets very well that what God is doing is a new creation. Because Gabriel tells Mary, you will be overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that language there is a throwback to Genesis 1. The Spirit was hovering over the deeps. There's a creation going on here. Something new. Something different. It's the miracle birth of the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior and Messiah. The kingdom comes through this one, and the kingdom is being renewed, and the nations are being subdued. So Good Shepherd Church, here at Christmas, be reminded that God aligns you into his plan to reach the world. Your world and my world, it may be Fort Bend County. It may be Southwest Houston. Your world and my world, may be, we may be thinking a bit more narrowly about it. But you are not alone. The nations are being blessed with what you treasure, what you embrace, what you carry, what you deliver to a neighbor. The nations are being affected. Your life, your speech. You are a part of this new creation of all the families coming underneath the sound of the gospel. And more than coming underneath the sound of the gospel, being converted. This is the cosmic. This is the cosmic way of our God who works through his church. You are the instrumental means. You are the instrumental means of holding that torch. So as you meet with family this week for Christmas, you meet with family going into the new year, you're holding forth a torch that is to burn brightly for all the generations, all according to his mercy, his mercy in Christ. That's where you receive mercy. Tell that mercy to others. Tell them, I don't deserve this. It's mercy. That's your witness. And as you hold forth that torch of the gospel, you're taking part in the mission to the world. Nations are being blessed. God's name is being revered. Right? The, the Habakkuk tells us 
think Isaiah tells us, may the knowledge of the Lord cover the entire earth, even as the waters cover the sea. That's what's going on. We praise him that we get to take part in that. Let's pray. Father, may we sing the praise of your great glory. Sing the praise of your great glory with thanksgiving. Be about the rejoicing and exaltation that you are worthy. Your name is holy. Your name is great. And you are faithful in all that you do. Strengthen us, O Lord, for the task at hand. You commission us to be your worshipers, and you commission us to be your witnesses. Uh, May that be a reality even in this new week. We give you the glory, we give you the honor, and how we praise you that Jesus Christ has come into this world to be the Savior of the world. And we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.